Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. If he unmutes himself... Episode 198, Friday the 16th of July 2021, 198 Mark, gee, we're two off the giveaway and I think we need to mention the giveaway because our listeners or subscribers only have two weeks to enter the giveaway and all they need to do is send an email to us, vetgurus at gmail.com and you're in the run-in, it's that simple, for the prize pack, the giveaway Mark, and do you want to talk a little bit about what's a part of what's in the in the prize pack <laughs> what's in the prize pack it's it's yes. a massive pile of things brendan it's um the swag it's we call it swag it's a very very useful four letter word to describe the massive amounts of stuff that we're getting from our uh wonderful sponsors the uh our friends from uh, uh animal nutrition uh, small animal nutrition S-A-N. Specialised Animal Nutrition. Specialised yes. Animal Nutrition. Um, and uh, they're the Australian uh, distributors of the wonderful Oxbow products. And we also have um, Microchips Australia, our uh, wonderful team there who uh, have helped us out with some pretty special and unique Tracking devices. And um, and also uh, the... the, the, the um, the the the, the sterilisers the, the 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 issues from um, uh, down in Melbourne how <laughs> chemical essentials <laughs> Andrew at chemical essentials and um, he keeps his COVID safe doesn't he with all his F10 products um, and we certainly still use the F10 products in our in our clinic here yes so th- thank you Mark you're on the ball tonight um, by the sound of things well you know. And- you yes. know, I've, you know, I've been in transit, Brendan. I've been in transit. Yes. So tell this listeners the story. You're on the road. You're at the moment. You're a, you're a, you're a grey nomad at the moment. Um, yes, yes. Yes. What are you doing? We've travelled. We've left Newcastle. We've packed up the swag. We've wrapped it up and popped it in the back of the camper and um, headed north to visit our son in Armadale and spend a few nights with him. And then we've crossed the border. Uh, it as Everyone would know in Australia, the border between New South Wales and Queensland is a bit of a hairy place at the moment, letting those listeners around the world know that um, there's sort of been a, I don't know, Brendan, would you call it a COVID differential? Um, There's in different states of Australia, there's sort of different levels of clusters. Well, response to clusters. Yes. 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 And so we dashed across the border north to the um, the Australian bush in south west Queensland um, and spent some time, some time looking for the lyrebirds that inhabit that area. I told you quite extensively yes. and bored you to tears. I think I heard you actually snoring in one part of my discussion. <laughs> no, um, that was just a yawn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a great time looking at the Albert's lyrebird and um and now we're in Brisbane, so it's all disorienting. I am disoriented. You are correct. 
So you're out of the home studio, so I forgive you for any any distractions or, or ambient sounds that shouldn't be there. Um, and hopefully you haven't taken your crickets with you, Mark. Um, and we don't hear those in the background. Yes. I've been so, so self-conscious of that self-conscious, you know, Brendan, the, what, you know, we've had discussions about uh, podcast production numerous times over the last 198 episodes. And, um, and it is, you know, we've had the night, the, the closet sound booth. We've had a number of arrangements, and and I was really upset that the crickets had upset some of our listeners. So yes, definitely, anything you can hear in the background is because we're traveling. We're outside our normal high quality sonic studio, and um, and yes, we'll uh, we'll 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 make things happen. You're coming ar- ar- across loud and clear to me, Mark, anyway. So um, let's hope that, that continues and that the generator doesn't doesn't die <laughs> while we're doing this. So my week, Mark, um, well, some of us has, have to work and I've been slaving away at work. I've been telling you about a couple of interesting cases which we might, we might cover at some stage, perhaps not with this podcast. And um, I'm always fascinated with some of the, comments clients put on our patient care sheets mark or or the um, new client forms and i think you have variations or a version at your clinic of of new client forms mark where whether they fill in details about the the animal and its enclosure for the unusual pets and temperature gradients uv light in all those sorts of things and we have like a four or five page questionnaire um that clients need to pass before we let them into the clinic. <laughs> um, they can de- download it from their um, download it from our website, and um, yeah, it certainly saves a lot of time, and it gives you a real insight into into both the patient, but also the client as well, and whether how how well educated or not they are, and how well or not they can spell, and what their writing's like, and whether they do cursive writing or not. And um, I was quite fascinated with one earlier last week. Um, I think it was a a rabbit and the and the client said um, the the age of the it said what species of rabbit is it lop rabbit um, what what um, sex is it you know male or female and how old is it and um, she put put down thirty nine years um, so, <laughs> thirty nine um, years yeah. And then I obviously realised that no, it was the age of the owner. She's put down. She thought <laughs> I was asking how old she was. Um, so it made a very interesting um, consult there, Mark. And um, I use that to my advantage. And when I had a chat to her, and she had her young family there, um, and I was, and, and she was struggling with the kids and the rabbit and everything, and juggling everything as you do when you have a young family. And and I did, I said to her, "Gee, well, you're doing quite well. You must be what you don't look. You know, you look like you're." Um, early 30s or something you know um, oh. and um, um, you're doing you know you're, you're coping quite well so you know a bit of flattery there Mark <laughs> um, so I knew that um, so and she um, she gave me a bit of a quizzical look there and um, we moved on to talk about her rabbit there. so <laughs> yes um, my, my, my the best one I had was when somebody um, we always have a lot the final line of the patient history form is you know why are you here today um, what do you want um, us to see your animal for? And um, it was a, a rabbit that I think it was a rabbit again that um, they put down. Uh, it's here to be castigated. Um, so 
Um, so when she pulled out the rabbit, I said, you're a very bad boy, um, Fluffy, and um, you're doing the wrong thing, um, and we're going to cut your balls off as well. <laughs> so there you go. That's my week, Mark. See, I've spent my whole professional career copying your, your those, those um, patient signal documents they're outstanding and so useful in general practice but i've never gotten any benefit not anything like the way you have out of them we have it must be a must perhaps it's a melbourne thing with some of the comments we um we sometimes take photos of the um history forms when when we have something quite amusing written down there so yes so that's what we've been up to i think we should jump into some news mark we don't have a review this week unless you have one do you have a review i have no review this week well in that case i'm going to talk about reptile poo mark fossilized reptile poo um as you know mark they're um you know what they're called don't you they're called coprolites um, and I'm pretty sure you already knew that. And in a fossilised dung from a dinosaur ancestor, they found a new beetle species, Mark. And it's amazing what what you can find when you go looking for it in poo, can't you? Um, and I remember I spent perhaps two years when I was doing my master's degree looking at reptile poo. That was um, my minor dissertation was reptile poo so um people are always giving me a whole lot of shit and um, i was looking at a lot of it um during that time so this is um from the current biology journal mark they found a fossilized chunk of ancient reptile poo and they found a complete specimen of a new beetle species an evolutionary biologist in sweden mark um so amazingly well preserved fossils in the poos of these animals and finding new species in spots we may not think about looking for new species mark um, it's a little bit like jurassic park isn't it it is a little bit like jurassic park and the whole amber story and what's trapped in amber because most of the coprolites, you know, are, are set in stone and so very difficult to to sort of visualise the microscopic detail. But these amber samples, um, and particularly that picture in the article which shows a computer rendering of um, fossilised dung containing those beetle samples um, and a number of other organic structures um, and they can even uh, it fascinates me that they've got a suspicion about the species of dinosaur that the um you know judging by what it ate how big the stool was they make a uh, an educated guess about the dinosaur that it comes from brendan so yeah I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. it jurassic park rings in the back of my mind when i read this article yes and if only we all had a synchrotron, synchrotron um, which is what they use to um, peek inside this coprolite. Um, it would be good. And um, yeah, that picture there, we'll link to it at vetgurus.com, um, that computer rendering. It's almost like a piece of art, isn't it, Mark? It is really it's like a piece of art. Beautiful looking. So there you go. That's my one and only news story, Mark. Um, fossilized poo and past life. Well, we always search for a segue between our articles, Brendan, and, and I can't come up with anything besides the fact that my article is associated with um, a reptile, much like yours. But 
but um, but it's a modern reptile, the leopard gecko, and it's Mr. Frosty. Mr. Frosty <laughs> is a um, uh, one of the lemon frosted uh, color morphs of the leopard gecko. The leopard gecko is probably the second most popular reptile in northern america have you still got me brenda my computer's playing up and yes saying, yeah good. yes no it's we probably, can hear you i can hear you. that's good that's good they're probably the second most popular species in captivity in north america and so there's a lot of literature about it and as is commonly the case when an animal is particularly popular in captive care there's a number of um sports or um, color mutations and um, one of them one of the varieties of the leopard gecko um, is um, is called lemon frost and those lizards are, have a, a profound white background uh, superimposed with yellow markings um, but these some of these lizards tend to develop tumors brendan and it's been a little bit of a um you know a, a What's the right word? A, 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 a problem. Why do these particular lizards develop um, tumours when their cohorts without the colour pattern do not? And certain researchers, particularly um, Yelana Chiara, an evolutionary biologist at George Mason University, um, commenting on the work, um, was saying that um, it's not about studying the gecko's health or about understanding basic biology. Um, but it's also about like how it transposes to other species, um, including humans. And this is one of the things about this story that really struck me that, um, you know, um, science doesn't lend itself to one specific answer. You know, you can't before the, the process go, oh, look, I want to know this. It's like, go in find a problem, solve it, and then see where that leads you. And sometimes it leads you into very, very strange places. Um, this particular study was focused on the white tumours that seem to occur on these lizards on the underside of their jaw. Um, and, geez, um, what was the number? 30 geckos had inherited the Lyman Frost lemon frost trade um and and of those what was the number 30 geckos and a significant number of i can't find it in the article but a significant number of them developed the tumors the gene they identified then a gene that gene the spint1 gene has not only been linked to cancer in humans, but also with tumour formation in fish and mice. Um, and so it's a critical example of how looking at the tumours in the reptiles can lead to um, studies in other species, which um, may in turn help humans. The other thing I found... Yes, I think it was... I think it was 80, more than 80% of the lemon frost geckos developed tumours made with the white skin cells, yeah. The other thing that fascinates me about this article, Brendan, is that the the external appearance of the animals um, that you know breeders or um, collectors tend to gravitate towards those gen 
the pathways, the biochemical pathways that leads to the that lead to those color changes, um, they often are associated with other changes in the animal's genetics, whether it be nervous system, whether it be um, defense against tumors. And so I don't, it sort of is a story that raises in my mind the the worry about breeding for color mutations um, and a, as a warning within the species, not looking without, um, maybe that's not necessarily a good thing to just, you know, pick these unusual coloured species and uh, in, in unusual coloured individuals and look to um, procreate from them. Yes, although I think we've spoken although, about this several times previously, it, it won't stop people breeding um, different colour variations and morphs um, because they like to have colour in their life, don't they, mate? They like to have things different. They like to produce mutants, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> You're so cynical. Well, and so realistic sometimes. <laughs> um, with with um, with, I, I'd love to say, and we've, I think. <sighs> We'll have to do a whole episode on on the whole aspects of breeding of unusual pets and um, where it's all going um, from everything from um, what we're seeing with rabbits and I think the increase with dental disease and the with sort of the brachycephalic syndrome that that I think we'll end up seeing more and more of um, in rabbits to the the huge um, breeding um, of reptiles um, and all these different different morphs etc you know it, it it's probably only been the last what five or ten years that um, it's really sort of taken off um, to some extent in Australia hasn't it Mark whereas we we look afar and look over to Europe and the USA and we'd see all those um, color variations and um, melanin variation as an albino um, reptiles that were being produced and we'd think, gee, how long is it going to be before we start to see them um, breeding bred in Australia? But we're increasingly seeing them in our practice and I don't know about you, Mark. Um, so, and I, yeah, I don't think it's a great thing, you know. Um, I, I, you know, I think we're, we're breeding, it's like the morphological things we're breeding for for you, you know, the standard dogs and cats and that, they're breeding for for the look and, and not for longevity and for hardiness um, with them. And uh, Yeah, I find I think it we a can little bit depressing. Well, yeah. let's leave it behind, but I agree with you entirely. I think it is a little bit depressing and across a whole range of species we can see examples of what people like which might not be entirely to the benefit of the animal so um and as we noted that that's you know there there are uh extensive discussions about brachycephalic breeds in dogs and 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 we need to have those discussions with our clients about unusual and exotic pets whether it be birds whether it be reptiles or guinea pigs or rabbits um we need probably to discourage those changes which are appealing to people and ask people to breed the sorts of animals that are going to be stout and, um, and not suffer from genetic inheritance. Yes. Good summary. Good <laughs> summary. Okay, let's jump into our main article or our main topic this week, which is a, 
It's a little one, but it's a big one because it's one that we commonly see, and I'm sure you're going to say exactly the same, and that's foreign bodies in the eyes of rabbits and guinea pigs. And the reason why I wanted to select this one is, Marcus, because it's such a common occurrence in in our practice, Mark, where we have a rabbit or a guinea pig which typically ends up with a an acute corneal ulceration there and the, the client rushes the animal into us. Do you see many of them, Mark? We do, Brendan, but I'm really interested to hear your point of view because we definitely see a cohort of patients who have like a clear foreign body, but um, but we also see a number of other eye diseases which are often difficult to distinguish from foreign bodies. And so how do you go, when that patient comes in, how do you go about um, sorting out the patients that, um, that might have a corneal ulceration due to a foreign body from those patients that have ocular disease for other reasons? You pull the foreign body out, Mark. There is one of the things in in the practice that I work at that's always the, the sort of sore point is that we haven't filmed it. Like it is such a dramatic moment, isn't it? Pulling that foreign body out, when you find the foreign body and you confirm it and pull it out, if you can film that, it's Facebook, Instagram, it's all over everywhere. And, um, yeah. It's so, it's so satisfying, isn't it? It's <laughs> it's almost as satisfying as the nasal foreign body in a rabbit or a guinea pig and and, and you pull out this long blade of grass or hay um, from that rabbit that's distressed and sneezing or struggling to breathe, yeah. So, yeah, you make a good point there. You know, how do we differentiate it from all the other eye diseases and we certainly won't be talking about all those other eye diseases that we see in these particular these two species there mark and it's getting back to basics isn't it it's a it's a clinical examination of that animal and um, looking for those signs of that foreign body and just realizing that this is a this is a bit of a syndrome or, or common condition that we see in rabbits and guinea pigs. So if you're not seeing many rabbits and guinea pigs, you need to put this pretty high on the list of, a, of an acute onset of, of, a, of an eye issue where the client phones up and says, my, my rabbit or guinea pig is, is really flat and it's closing its eye and or it has epiphora um, and it just seems really painful in that eye um, and photophobia. Um you need to put this pretty high on the list because it's such a such a common common presentation there. So my approach to these is well, it's the usual. Let's we go through all the husbandry and, and all the other basics, and we forget about the eye, and we 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 detect all the other issues that the guinea pig has that's brought in, um, and then we look at that eye. And um, more often than not, ninety nine point nine percent of these cases. Um, um, at some stage during the examination, I will be putting some topical anesthetic agent on that eyeball there mark and it's amazing you can almost see the the rabbit or the guinea pig sigh and and relax and say thank goodness for that you've you've given me a bit of relief and i've i've been unfortunate enough to have a a corneal ulcer that that happened from a, a sliver of wood mark um from being a bit silly with um trying to um drill something underneath the house without putting some eye protection on and <laughs> a sliver of um, wood going into one of my eyes and it stayed in overnight and it was incredibly painful um, and I went down to the emergency 
session of the local GP, and yeah, he he put the local anaesthetic in there, and oh, gee, it was it was fantastic, and he managed to then pull out this little piece of um, sliver of wood, and away I went. Yeah. So, Brendan, so which yeah. um, which local anaesthetic for ocular? I use, use the Opthane one, um, yep. the Opthane um, brand one, um, and um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be having a obviously a bit of a a, 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 a quick check of the eye first, and some of these you can see the obvious um, um, little hay um, piece or the awn that sit in there. Um, and typically, with the, the majority of the ones that I see, it is a is a little section of hay um, or a little seed um, there, and so it sometimes tracks down to um, to a change in 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 the. Um, the hay or the feed that they've given that animal that week if you quiz the owners um try not to lead them on that they've you know bought bought a new lot of hay and it's a really you know poor quality or seedy sort of um, um version of hay that they did bought a couple of days ago it is surprising how often that happens though that once you have the discussion yeah. you hear from them that oh no i bought from a different supplier or i bought a different amount um that that change and obviously the animal not accommodating to the the um the, the new food source um, that leads to that you know their behavior the risk increases and then they end up with a problem so yep an interesting yes. and question to ask tip- and typically um, that foreign body that little seed or awn is is located um, more often than not in the medial aspect there in the fornix there um, I almost, find that so oh but God. they can what? be they can be hidden away can't they mark mm, so yeah. I think sorry um, it, uh, I think the tricky thing there that the, the important thing there the tip is that yeah make sure that you after you do your jet, basic examination of the animal and a basic visual of it, um, put that local anaesthetic in that eye and, and wait for that that eye to relax and open and um, have a really good poke around there and and um, use some magnification and, and open. Brendan, uh, I found avert those uh, eyelids. Avert the eyelids. You, you, I found that um, using uh, one of the ocular local anaesthetics and um, and maybe having a a syringe of normal saline with a, a catheter tip on it, um, and often you you will definitely see some of them. Once you relax the eyelids with the local anaesthetic, you'll see them. You'll pull them out. Everything's solved. But um, there are a proportion of them that um, the the bit of hay or grass is beneath you know deep in the conjunctival fornix and if it embeds itself doesn't it yeah and if you sort of inflate those areas with um with the saline you slide the catheter under the eyelid and inflate that area and look with magnification um you can often see things that you can't see routinely yes good point good point um and hopefully you'll manage to see that um, foreign body and remove it. Um, and my next step after that, um, and we'll talk about, you know, some I've had I've had a few where I've, re, I've thought I've removed the whole little grass seed um, and yet there's a little bit left and, and we know that's the case because it just does not improve the way it should and the vast majority of these, that, that if you remove that foreign body, obviously it should heal pretty damn quickly even if it had a, had a decent corneal ulcer there, um, although there's a bit of a... Um, 
a bit of an issue with rabbits, I think, which we'll talk about in a sec with, with corneolysis that I'd like your opinion on, Mark. Um, so I, 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 after hopefully retrieving that foreign body um, under that local topical anesthesia there, Mark, I'll then, I'll then stain up that eye and I'll see how big that corneal ulcer is, if there is one there. And it, it is pretty amazing how extensive those corneal ulcers um, can be. Um, they may not necessarily be super deep if we've, if we've, um, uh, um, check the animal fairly, fairly soon after it, um, the foreign body is is lodged in that eye. Um, but it's amazing. I've had some where the whole, you know, the virtually the whole cornea is stained up with that, with that fluorescein stain. And it's particularly interesting in contrast to those of us who see dogs and cats. You know, you'll frequently see a relatively specific area in the companion animal species who, you know, it's just a tiny fraction of the cornea, but in rabbits, like you say, it's uh, it's often um, the whole, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to see the whole cornea light up fluorescent green, um, and it's often um, a significant proportion of the cornea when it isn't the whole part. So what's your, what's your next deck with these ones, Mark? You've removed that foreign body you've stained it you've you've determined there's a corneal ulcer that's not super deep um and um what are you going to send that animal home on um, and what's your advice to the client well we've we've varied over the years brendan we you know when i was a relatively new person to rabbit's eyes and neophyte um i would occasionally apply cortisone to those things to try and settle them down um to settle the inflammation down if the uh, um, cornea wasn't badly ulcerated, but that always goes badly. Rabbits and uh, um, cortisone just don't mix at all. So we would use um, one of the uh, eye ocular ointments, one of the um, uh, lubricating ointments, um, antibacterial because bacteria tend to secondarily infect these lesions um, and um, and send them home with uh, maybe, I often find that the, the typical one that we would use, chloromycetin, um, is very irritating for many of the rabbits. And so um, uh, something containing some uh, gentamicin, maybe optocin, something like that, that lubricates the eye and keeps it clean um do you ever use uh the the uh, uh plasma the 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 um serum no that what's it yeah the the flavor of the the year to to to, sp- to suck a bit of blood from that rabbit or, or that guinea pig and, and spin it down and then um use that um use that um serum um and and dispense it in a little a little container and get the owners to to, to drop that and then no i don't have, have you mark <laughs> i've read about it many times <laughs> and repeatedly gone oh this would be a great case to do that on and never gotten around to it so um yes, and, yes. and that's so probably I, I an indication I, that um the treatment that we use works okay yes and i'm very similar to what you you do there what sort of lubricating the eye and, and trying to protect from any secondary um, infectious processes there um, depending on how how painful that animal did seem and, and, and whether or not it had sort of any um, moderate or severe conjunctivitis or sort of episcleral injection or any, any sort of secondary um, eye 
um, issues, I might um, also put it on a course of um, a non-steroid or typical, typically oral meloxicam, um, um, our, our um, anti-inflammatory mark, um, and I think that 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 works quite well um, with them as well. And that's basically all I do. And then, and I certainly encourage the clients to get back to the clinic with the animal within within a week, um, three to five, three to seven days to re-examine that eye and restain it um, to make sure. And it's remarkable how the ones that respond the way they should, how 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 amazingly quickly that corneal ulceration disappears. And um, it's a great one to show the clients, isn't it? I always show them the, the that ulcer of that animal and, and then pull that, grass seed out of the eye and, and give it to the owner and then a week later you, you stain up the eye in front of the owner again and they're, they're quite amazed at how how small the um, ulceration is and how quickly it's responded just to just to time um, mainly, it's a good, isn't it? They're good um, cases in, to make sure that you get photographs of too, Brandon, because I think sometimes, I don't know whether your clients are different to mine, but um, it's often the case that I am stunned by the improvement in only a week and compared to like we talked about before some of our um, our small animal clients other small animal clients who who whose you know eyes may take weeks and weeks and weeks before the corneal also heals these ones once you remove the irritating piece of uh, a plant material it they do they do tend to just heal up really, really quickly. And so having a photograph of the fluorescent region and uh, at the first instance and then comparing it to, like you said, three to seven days later, um, even if the client isn't amazed at how the rabbit is much happier, they're amazed at how much smaller that fluorescent region is. Yes. And we'll just briefly touch on the ones that go bad um, with these ulcerations and and with my experience it's more often the rabbits and the guinea pigs and that we sometimes end up with some of these rabbits that end up with these well i suppose they're just indolent ulcers aren't they um that 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 they just go incredibly bad fairly quickly and um then they're a bit of a nightmare to to um get under control and there's all sorts of things that we try and do with some of these that just are not healing and we almost some, I think some of them are almost having a melting cornea type situation with them. Have you have you experienced that at all, Mark? Definitely the case, Brendan. And I I wonder what what is going on with those. You know whether it's a change in the shape of the 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 eye because often those eyes seem more prominent whether they're exposed more. Um, it, it, yep, there definitely seems to be multifactorial reasons. I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion. I don't, you know, we've searched some of these rabbits three times for remaining bits of foreign material in the in the eye and haven't found anything. I think there's some trip point at which some rabbits fall over into a, a you know, ocular di- disease state, and um, and it's difficult to draw them back, whether it's the bugs that get into their eyes or whatever. Yes, yes, there's certainly something going on there and it's always a, well, it's an important reason why we, we get that animal back within a few days, especially with the rabbits, because um, when you have one that goes wrong, um, and it's very hard to predict which ones will get to that stage, um, they can be a really long process there and I've even had somewhere where 
we've ended up having to remove the globe because um, we end up with a this disaster um, with it, no matter what where we go with it. Perhaps I'm not using the serum, Mark. I'm, I should be early on, and that's that's the issue with these ones. I don't know. Well, I'd be interested a- in whether any of our listeners have any um, comments on this sort of um, issue in, in rabbits that they're seeing, Mark. Well, like you, it's predominantly rabbits. It's a small proportion of our patients and um, and they do, uh, they're disastrous and they do seem to um, fester along until you remove the eye and, and um, yeah, they're distressing in some ways, aren't they? Yes, and the only other comment I'd like to make about this little topic, Mark, is that we ha- I have the odd guinea pig that's pro, especially the guinea pigs more so than the rabbits, that is... It's just prone to getting foreign bodies in its eye. Um, and I, perhaps it's the behaviour of that particular guinea pig that it likes to really burrow into its 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 litter and its little den there. Um, but I've had the odd one that's just, you know, here here it comes again and it's it's got another grass seed in its eye. Have you had any like that, Matt? We have had one or two that, um, now that you mention it, that seem to follow that pattern that... Um, uh, both of the ones that jumped to my mind were long-haired guinea pigs, and um, and I do wonder whether they had some behavioural component to to the recurrence, whether it wasn't just a, a physical thing with the, the quality of the food, the change in the food, but whether their behaviour led them to be more at risk. I don't know. Yes, and long-haired guinea pigs, Mark, isn't that what they call rabbits in Queensland? Long-eared in Queensland. Long-eared. Oh, okay. Yes, long-eared. Um, for our listeners overseas, it, um, it's, well, do you want to tell the story about? Um, I do, Brenda, because um, we, we travelled over the Queensland border, Kate and I, and there was a specific note on the side of the road which pointed out that um, rabbits and guinea pigs, uh, rabbits and ferrets are illegal in the the um, state of Queensland in Australia, and um, and so they do. People that hold them, not that I think that anyone actually does. It might be an apocryphal story, uh, but um, it is told that some people that hold those species have them under different names just to avoid the the pressure of the law. Yes. Well, fortunately, we don't have that concern <laughs> down here. Um, but um, any other any closing comments, Mark, about foreign bodies in the eyes of rabbits and guinea pigs, and and we should co- we'll cover um, um, some other eye conditions in in the small mammals in another in a future podcast as well. I just think it's critically important that um, that when we look at them, that I find magnification makes all the difference for me, Brendan. Your eyesight is good, but if I don't have my um, uh, um, surgical loop or equivalent uh, on my face, um, then I often end up regretting it uh, two or three hours later when the animal is anaesthetised and I do have access to that area. So magnification, good illumination, good starting points. Yes, great point. And, yeah, you well, I certainly still miss some of those foreign bodies no matter how much I try and look there and... Um, if you can't identify the source of that ulceration there and um, it's a rabbit or a guinea pig, then you know certainly don't be afraid of, of sedating or anaesthetising it to make sure you have a thorough look and um, you're 
perhaps you'll find that little seed that's embedded um, that you couldn't see during the clinical exam in front of the client. Well, I think with that, Mr. Outro's here, and we'll talk to you all next week. Don't forget to enter the giveaway, vetgurus at gmail.com. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes, and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again, and see you next time. Thanks.